Well, good morning, everyone. First of all, a disclaimer on my voice. I had a cold, turned into a sinus infection, probably went cycling a little too hard. Got something deep back in here. I'll see an ENT this week and uh, find out there's something in the back of the throat. But I'm healthy. Just the voice is coming back, getting stronger. And so bear with me this morning. So if you would, open your Bibles to Matthew 16. Oh, look, I can start with a pro tip. You want a pro preaching tip? When you come up and you have to read your Bible in front of everybody, it always helps to have it right side up, ready to open going forward. Just makes it, just one of those things makes it easier. Um, Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. This is Christ, and he says to his disciples, Jesus says to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? we, We often say, and it's very true, that much of what we learn in the New Testament that is, is embryonic, is taught first by Christ in the Gospels. And then it's expanded on by all the wonderful authors that the Holy Spirit has used to give us the New Testament. Here you can see Christ using accounting terms, lose and profit and gains. And he then says in that last sentence there, what will a man give in exchange? What will he, what will he give in exchange for his soul. This is, this is accounting terminology. This is, this is the barter economy that used to exist back then where you, you traded goods and services. What would you be willing to give in exchange for your soul? Well, if you turn back to Matthew 13, just a couple chapters back, and you look at the kingdom parables in Matthew 13, verses uh, 44 and through 46, Jesus answers his own question. And he says there, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field in which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells, here it is, sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Repeated that twice. And of course, the pearl, the treasure, those are Christ, those are salvation. The price that a man is willing to pay for his salvation? Everything. Everything. Isn't that what happened to each of us? What happened to you when you came to salvation? Didn't you realize at that moment when you realized who Christ was and where you were headed, that everything in your life up until that point, everything that you you believed and you valued all your thoughts, your pride of, of religion, everything, everything is worthless. Dung, as we will see. Nothing. And, and the biggest thing you gave up, of all that you gave up everything, you gave up your pride. Okay, because you gave up your way of thinking on how you would get to heaven, on how you would please Christ. Well, what I'd like to do now is turn to Acts chapter 9, and I want to talk about our author today, Paul. In Acts chapter 9, we see the famous Damascus Road confrontation by Christ. 
Acts chapter 9. We'll start in the first verse there. Of course, back then he was Saul. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened he was approaching Damascus, excuse me, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground, and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told to you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days. Note that, three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. And if you look forward, just uh, picking some verses, the end of verse 17, it says that Saul, and now he's with Ananias, it says he was uh, filled with the Holy Spirit, and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Look at the end of verse 18, he was baptized. Uh, You look at verse 20, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues, saying that he is the Son of God. Verse 22, but he kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. He was saved. And it's clearly the evidence here, he was saved. But it doesn't tell us how, it just tells us that he was saved. Many would look at this and say, well, Christ zapped him on the road. He just, you know, overpowered him and he saved him. And Paul had no choice, didn't think anything. In one moment, he was saved. Well, think about Paul. Paul knew who Christians claimed that Jesus Christ was. He clearly knew who Christ was. He knew the gospel of the Christians. He was a Jew. He knew the gospel, and he was out persecuting and killing Christians for that gospel. So this Paul was not ignorant here on the road, okay? And what happened is somewhere between verse 3 on chapter 9... He got confronted in verse 18 or 17 there when he's filled with the Holy Spirit. Somewhere between those verses, Paul, Saul, was saved. Paul came to know Christ. Now, what was going on inside of Paul? What was happening? Well, for that, let's turn to Philippians chapter 3. Because in Philippians chapter 3, you go from this external story of what happened to Paul to what was going on inside of Paul. What this man knew and believed about himself before his conversion as Saul and what he thought afterwards. So, as he was traveling on that Damascus road and he was planning to persecute Christians there before Christ appeared, verse 4 tells us what his view of himself was. How he saw himself spiritually. And although I myself might have confidence Even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. 
You, you just sense the pride oozing here, the self-righteousness, the, the, the sense that I have arrived. I am on top of the world. I, I am the Jew of Jews. Well, what happened next after verse 6? Well, Acts chapter 9, verses 3 to 18, that's what happened to Paul after verse 6 because Christ confronted him on the Damascus Road. And as I said, pointed out that for three days, somewhere in that three days, Paul's whole life, his whole perspective of himself changed, okay? And all that happened between verse 6 and verse 7 here in Philippians. We go from his thinking as he was going down that road before Christ confronted him to what's going on in him afterwards, okay? He says in verse 7, whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He was saved. You can see that you can go to that narrative, you can see his thinking before, and you can see how his thinking changed somewhere in that three days. And if you remember the words of Christ there in Matthew 13 and Matthew 16, these counting terms of gain and loss and profit and exchange, well, Paul uses those same words. It really makes you wonder if he'd heard this story. Honestly, we don't know. But he uses those same words. And so in verses 8 to 11, now he talks about who he is as a Christian. So let's go back through those. In verse 8, more than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And as we do this, note the positive statements. This is all plus and minus accounting terminology. Loss, gain, plus, minus. Uh, think of the positive terms here. Surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I, positive, may gain Christ. Verse 9, it may be found in him, again, positive, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. It continues, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now for our section for today, we get to verse 12. And why do we go through all of that? Because we've got this one word that's going to get in our way here at the beginning. Not that I have already obtained it. And that's going to take us back in a moment. Or I have already become perfect, but I press, hold, press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Use that for the title. The one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What do we want to talk about today? You must pursue. You must pursue one goal in your life. One goal. The one thing. Can't put up a second finger. One thing. The one goal. You must pursue knowing Jesus Christ fully, okay? If you're going to pursue, you're going to goal, this is our goal, this is Paul's goal, everyone's goal, you will pursue, you must pursue one goal in your life. The one thing I do, pursue knowing, knowing Jesus Christ fully. We're going to look at that, we're going to talk about that, that, that goal first, that you must have the proper goal, 
And we'll look and see. Just follow through the verses after that, 12 to 14. You must have the proper attitude. You must make the proper effort here. You must keep the proper focus. And again, we're going to come back to then, because it repeats at the end of the section, you must have the proper goal. So we'll go back through those. If you want to write those down, we'll do each one. And as, as Neil said and such, and I, I could see it in the way Vic was talking, was saying, we've all been in Philippians. We've all been studying Philippians. We know the context of this book. We know the, the opponents of Paul. I'm not here today. We're not going to go back to this in context. I want you to focus, just like the passage, on the one thing. So let's stay with that. And I will assume that, that you know, remember most of what's going on in this book. All right, so let's start out with you must have the proper goal. Not that I have already obtained it. We're just going to do that word it. I came to Marianne a couple days ago and I said, I have just spent the last two days struggling over one word. She says, what word? I was struggling over it. She goes, well, what's it? I went, well, it. I was struggling over it. You know, and the jokes got worse from there. But... But she's sitting there, okay, okay, so the word is it. Well, she's, op- she's holding her Bible. She opens her Bible up, and she says, it's in italics. It's not even there. You know, in italics means not in Greek. It's not even there. Oh, that's it. That's, um, there's my problem. It's not even in the text, okay? What is it, okay? It's not there. Paul is being so direct that he's saying, not that I have obtained an applied object. It's implying, go back to what I just told you in the last three verses, okay? And so if you go back, and we'll just walk through quickly. You've now heard it read twice. We take out the law statements. We have to understand in this passage what it is because it is the one thing. It is our singular focus that we need to pursue, okay? Again, verses 8 to 11, it's this gain-loss metaphor, accounting. I gained here, I lost here. Uh, I reckon, considered, that's an accounting term, accounted these things. And so let's take out the lost statements and just walk through. See everything that Paul put in the gain column. Now, first of all, it's, it's past, present, and future. So you, you've got some flow here in terms of, of where we're moving. It also is what we call already but not yet. Some of these things you're going to look and say, Paul has these already but he doesn't have them fully. So he's got it already in some form. He's growing, and he's going to eventually get it fully. And so in the middle, then, are some of these things that he is getting as he grows. So past, present, future, have part of it, get more now, and getting fully in eternity. The other thing that's very difficult here is think of this as a diamond. This diamond is, is knowing Jesus Christ. And he's going to see that in the very first phrase, knowing Jesus Christ. In verse 8 there, he calls it the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And so he wanted to understand what this is. It's, it's being known by knowing Christ. And so this first facet, this surpassing value of knowing, he starts out by showing that, that, that it is a relationship. His relationship with Jesus Christ, his personal relationship. He has concluded that everything in his life, verses 4 to 7 before this, zero value compared to having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Surpassing value, matchless, incomparable. But here's the key to why we say it's this way. 
There are multiple words, two words especially for knowing in, in, in the Greek language. One is knowledge of. I have knowledge of something. Well, this is the other word. This is experiential knowledge. Okay? This is knowing by experience, knowing through relationship. How many things, you know, often we learn things. We don't read a book. Somebody just shows us how to do it. We learn about our wives. We learn about our husbands by being around them and experiencing how they react and they do things. This is what this is. This is not knowledge about Christ. This is relationship knowing, and it's very personal. So the first thing we see about what he gained was knowing Christ, knowing him through relationship. The other thing, look at the end of verse 8. Next positive thing is, I may gain Christ. Now you're taking the same thing of knowing Christ, but you're looking at it from a different facet of this diamond. You're looking at it from an accounting point of view, a gain and a loss point of view, all right? And it's also got this word may in there. So it's looking forward from where he's at. It's actually looking all the way to eternity about his gaining Christ. Moving forward, beginning of verse 9 there, and may be found in him. That's looking at the same thing from his union with Christ. Christ in him, him in Christ, be found in him. And this is one of those already not yet things. He's already got Christ in him. He is in Christ, and so he, he is in Christ, but he's not fully in Christ. So he says, I may be found here. It's not yet fully realized. I may be found. If you look at verse 10, let's look at this knowing Christ from a participation point of view. All right? You've seen it from a relationship, accounting. You've seen it from union. Now he says, let me give you another angle on this, and we'll do it from participation. And he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And in verse 10, he, he calls this being conformed to his death. And he goes on in verse 11, in order that I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Let me put some words around these phrases to, to, to tell you what he's saying here. If you, if you want to paraphrase this, Paul is saying, my supreme ultimate goal is to know Jesus Christ fully. Know Jesus Christ fully. And I'm going to grow in knowing him. I'm going to grow in knowing him by means of experiencing his power, the power of his resurrection, experiencing his power in my life, and by participating in his sufferings. As I suffer as Christ suffered, as I suffer in this world as a Christian, for being a Christian, persecuted, I will share in his suffering. That is going to help me to know him, to grow my relationship with him. And so in doing that, as I grow, as I grow in the suffering, I'm going to be, as he says, continually conformed to his death until the resurrection. That, and we won't go into all the details, that says I am going to continually be changing, putting off sin, putting off my flesh, flesh decreasing, sin decreasing, and my Christ-likeness increasing, that will bring me to a greater knowing of Christ. What did you hear in those three verses? Knowing Christ, knowing Christ, knowing Christ. All from different angles, different facets of the same diamond. He says it's all about my ultimate goal is knowing Christ fully. Knowing Christ fully. So like Paul We've got to have the right goal. If you want to be like Paul, if you want to be as commanded here, you must pursue one thing. And that one thing is knowing Jesus Christ fully. Relationship. Personal relationship. 
Let's move forward. Let's talk about the proper attitude. And this is now, instead of taking this it, let's look at the whole passage that it's in. It says, not that I have already obtained it or have become perfect. Simple way, you know, not obtained it. We don't, I don't have it already. Right? I just don't have it. I've not received it. I've not achieved it. I've not acquired it. He's speaking very generally here, and he's saying, I don't have it. He's looking at his whole life up until this point and says, I haven't reached fully knowing Jesus Christ. I haven't obtained. And NIV says, not that I have obtained all this. <laughs> Let's summarize verse 8 to 11 as all this, all these things there. Um, it's a little more specific that it's knowing Christ fully. And so that's, if you say, if I have not obtained it best, that's the best way to say it. I don't know Christ fully yet, all right? And I won't until I'm glorified, until I reach the resurrection of the dead. All right. And it says, or I've become perfect. That's a very interesting phrase. Uh, it's the same thing that he just said, but it's very specific. We think of the word perfect most often, and if we're not careful, we translate it as glorification. But really, it's completion here. And so the best translation is, I have not already completed my goal of knowing Christ. This whole context is about knowing Christ, okay? I've not arrived at my goal, as the NIV says, of knowing Christ. Now, some commentators and preachers take this as perfect and assume it's, it's Christ-like Paul's glorification. Let's just clear that up right now. It's not that, all right? Uh, it's, it's knowing Christ. And you think about it. They're two different things, okay? Becoming like Christ and Christ-like like goes a long ways to helping me know him. I can think like him. I can react like him. I can understand what he values, how to please him. That goes a long way, becoming Christ-like. But that doesn't replace my relationship with him. That doesn't replace my experience with him. It doesn't replace knowing him, Okay? It's one of the important ways that helps me to know him, but knowing him is a bigger, broader umbrella. And so part, but not all. In fact, this point here that I've not already obtained it, look down to verse 13. It's so important to Paul for us to understand that he repeats it. He says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. So twice in the same passage, it's there, okay? Well, what do we do this with this when you look at this and you look at Paul and he says, I haven't laid hold of it? I mean, Paul, he's already spiritually mature. In fact, we consider Paul to be one of the most spiritually mature men that, or women that has ever lived, that God has blessed. Well, the first thing to apply this is to understand spiritual maturity is not enough. Spiritual maturity is not enough. This is a goal that will take us through the rest of our lives to eternity. Spiritual maturity is not enough. See, so the danger, the opposite is, is I've arrived, okay? That's very, I don't need to grow more. And then what happens if I don't need to grow more? I'm not in his word. I'm not studying the Bible. I'm not thinking about him. He's not involved in my life. Uh, I'm not trying to put on more and more Christ-likeness. I'm not pursuing my relationship with him. Now, here's what I'd like to suggest. I'd suggest that as we all sit here, we would all say and understand if I, I said to each of you, asked you, are, you, are you spiritually mature enough? We would all say, no, no, I, I get it. No, I'm not. 
okay? I understand what you're saying. And so we're, we're, we're not going to answer that way. But here's the challenge. Look at your life. Look at your life. Look at your actions, okay? Look at how you act. Look at what you do. Look at where you spend your time. And that may tell a completely different story. In other words, you may be deceiving yourself, and you may not be spending the time to pursue the one thing that is your relationship knowing Jesus Christ fully. And you're not doing anything, all right? Your, your, your actions are saying to our Lord, who's sitting there on the throne, your actions are saying to the Lord, I've arrived. I'm good enough. We wouldn't answer that way. But when he looks at our lives, and he does, he would say, he thinks he's arrived. She thinks she's arrived. She's not growing. Now, for those of you that think you have arrived and you're willing to just say, I've arrived, I've got a simple test for you. Compare yourself to Jesus Christ and see if you've arrived. No. Okay. It's an infinite comparison. No. You haven't arrived. Okay. We need to have Paul's attitude. You must have Paul's attitude. I have not arrived. I have not obtained it yet. The second thing to see in just this simple point here is Paul is willing to self-examine himself. Think about what that means. He's willing to self-examine himself. He's willing, you know, he's willing to say to the Lord, show me my heart. Now remember, our heart is, weetful, uh, is deceitful and wicked. Let's put the two words together. Deceitful and wicked. We don't know our hearts fully. Only the Lord knows our hearts. We have to pray to him to show us our hearts. So in order to make a statement like this, be willing. Be willing to ask the Lord to show you your heart. Okay? And, and what he's saying, all of this passage is ongoing. It's continuous. And what he's saying, here, he's saying it twice. You need to maintain an honest, open assessment of where you are in your spiritual growth. Honest. And he's showing that twice. So ask yourself, do I ask the Lord to show me my heart? Am I willing to see where my spiritual growth is or it isn't? And that's what Paul was willing to do here. And that's a huge message to us, okay? As I like to say, as I studied this all week, I was convicted day after day, moment after moment. This is so simple, yet it is so profound in how we are to live. So as we do this, think about it. We've got to pursue one goal, that one thing, pursuing Jesus Christ. That's our goal. And at first of all, after that, it requires we must have the proper attitude that we don't have it yet. So let's look at the next one here. Look at the second part of verse 12. You must make the proper effort, the proper effort. You get the right attitude, you haven't arrived, now you need to make the proper effort. He says, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by, make sure I get it right, Christ Jesus. I always want to read that, Jesus Christ. So now, we're going to switch metaphors. He's moving out of this accounting metaphor of plus and minus, gain, loss, profit, and these things, and he's changing metaphors to the metaphor of running. Okay, the metaphor of running. We are now into athletics. We're going to see words like press on, goal, prize. These are athletic terms about a runner. So this word press on, it means to pursue, it means to strive, it means ongoing, strenuous 
effort, okay? This is, uh, Paul wants us to think about athletics. He wants you to think about the Olympic athlete, the world championship person who is training and racing as the sole focus of their life in order to win the prize. He says, I press on. It's so important that again, he's going to repeat this phrase in verse 14. And he says, I press on and here toward the goal for the prize. If you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, because he is invoking here the very picture that he gives to the Corinthians in chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27. There he says, verse 24, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Question. Run in such a way that you may win. We're going to see that word win come back to us. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. He's not just talking about running. He's talking about what it takes to win, okay? Self-control, okay? Run in such a way, not without aim. Discipline my body. Make it my slave. A runner's singular focus is to win the race. And they do everything in their life order everything else to focus on that one thing. And that's what Paul is saying, I do for my spiritual life here. And then he says, so that. And so this is the purpose of pressing on, the strenuous ongoing effort, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. This, this passage has got repeating phrases, and now he's going to get into wordplay, and he's going to use the same words back and forth here. Lay hold and, and laid hold are the same verse, verb back in a, the, the previous verse. Obtain is a less intense form of that. The Holy Spirit is working through Paul here to keep our focus on the one focus of what we need to be doing. The repetition here is enormous. The, it, it just keeps pointing you back, pointing you back to say, Christian, listen, there is one subject that I want you to pay attention to. Lay hold here is grasp, it's seize, it's take a firm grip of something specific. It's a strong, intense word. It's used of the demon in Mark 9:18 when he seizes the boy and then he throws him to the ground. It's continuous, it's ongoing, it's you do the action. All those things that you would expect in a running analogy for running a marathon, not running a sprint. This is a marathon. Life is a marathon. This is a marathon that started on the day you were saved, and it's going to go to the day that you die, or that Christ comes and takes us home. It's translated that word win in 1 Corinthians. This lay hold of it is, is win, that you may win in 1 Corinthians 9.24 that we just read. But what does he want to lay hold of? Hey, look back. What, what's he trying to grasp here? Well, he tells us he's trying to lay hold of the very same thing 
for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Well, what is that very same thing? Well, first of all, Paul's looking back to the day on the Damascus Road here, and he, that Christ violently changed his life, and he's saying here, I am intensely motivated, driven to grasp the very same thing that Christ has a hold of me for. Oh, that's worth going for. Well, what does Christ have hold of him for? Oh, we're back in verse 8 to 11. Say, this is Scripture. Christ has a hold of him to know him fully. Christ says, I have laid hold of you, Max, Valia. I've laid hold of you because I want you to know me. I laid on, it's the very same goal, this is scripture. What he just described as his goal, he's now telling us that was, Paul, that was Christ's goal for him. Christ grabbed him on that road. Christ saved you. Christ saved you for the sake that you would come to know him fully in eternity. Wonderful, okay? That you would know him. You think about Christ. He humbled himself. He became a man. In this fallen world, he lived a life, he experienced all of our humanity, tempted as we were tempted, tested as we were tempted, okay? Nowhere to lay his head. He had it rougher than many people in his day. He knows us. He knows our fallenness. He knows our lives as as humans. He's experienced it. And now he says, I laid hold of each one of you because I want you to know me fully. Okay? And as we saw back in verse 8, eight and 11, through 11 there, especially in verse 10 and 11, I want you to experience my life. I want you to live out the power of my resurrection in your life so that you experience your life. That'll help you to know me more. I want you to suffer as I have suffered. That will help you to know me more. Take that power. Live as I lived. Suffer as I suffered. I do want you to become like me but I want that so that you know me more, that you know me fully. He's intensely motivated to to do the other side of the equation. Christ grabbed me for this, and I want this more than anything in my life, okay? One author wrote, the only worthy goal of a Christian is wrapped in a picture of working as hard as an Olympic athlete until the day you die, until to attain as intimate, as close, as personal a relationship now with the living Christ. What's the danger here? Can we minimize the effort that we must apply? All right. See, I press on. This, This is not like taking a daily walk for your health or being a weekend warrior where you get out and You know, do your run or do your bicycling or something on a weekend. Uh, This is not even like regular exercise to stay healthy, okay? This is nothing less than saying my life, everything that I do, is focused on pursuing one thing, okay? Everything else in our Christian life, whether it's our marriage, our family, work, everything else, ministry falls under this one goal. And I am willing to pursue it with every fiber of my being, every moment of my being for the rest of my life. The danger here, that you will leave here, that I will leave here today and not change our whole life around. 
not turn our whole life around to one thing. You got what that one thing is yet? Pursuing Jesus Christ and knowing him fully, okay? That's our danger, that we don't walk away from here and I got to turn my life around and one thing is by overriding important goal. So can I ask yourself, do you press on like this? Do you press on like this? Do you fall in bed at the end of the day, at night, exhausted from pressing on, for striving, from pursuing your relationship with Jesus Christ and knowing him? A scale of one to 10, where would you put yourself for, you know, pressing on? Yeah, there's days I've had to use negative numbers, but from one to 10, where would you put yourself? Where, you know, how hard are you pressing on? And you know what? Most people don't realize this hit hard. This really hit me hard. Paul's writing this letter 30 years after his own conversion. All right? Will you be pressing on when you're as old as me? I just turned 65 last week, okay? This, he's an old man. And he is still pressing on. He is still driven like an Olympic athlete at that age to pursue knowing Christ. This is huge, all right? This is a huge effort. This is beyond what most of us ever fathom. But we must apply, we must make the proper effort. All right, so we've seen so far that we've got to have the proper goal, we've got to have the proper attitude, we've got to make the proper effort, okay, for this one thing. Well, now we get to it. You must have the proper focus. You must have the proper focus, and it is singular. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Here he's repeated again. We need to go through it. I don't need to go through it in detail again. I haven't obtained it yet. I haven't arrived. I don't know Christ yet fully. The second time. This laid hold, again, very strong negation here. I haven't 100% completely, perfectly attained this, okay? This is that, that you may win, as I said before. But now look at the next point. This is the, the key phrase. But one thing I do. The I do isn't there. It's pulled from the beginning of the verse. But it's very intense. It's, it's I myself do. But he just ends this whole thing. He says, but one thing. One thing, one thing, okay? How many things does Paul do? Yeah, one. Is he that focused? Yes, okay? Um, and then he says, now let's define this. This is important. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. He starts with, he's got a negative and then a positive, okay? Think about these phrases. If you're going to focus on one thing, you can't focus on two things, Right? One thing, you, gotta, you can't do two things. So you got to let go of something. Well, and he tells us the biggest threat here for moving forward is forgetting what lies behind. Forget the entire past. Right? Forget all your failures. Forget all your successes. Forget all your hurts, your tragedies. Forget all that. Do not live in the past. Do not live in the past. It has, Paul saying, it has nothing to do with your future. And it distracts you from one thing. And the one thing becomes a part-time thing. 
And the forgetting that the past doesn't happen, then it's the main thing. And you, the main thing has to be what we're going to see in a, in a moment. But this is so important. The past only distracts you. The past only slows you down. It paralyzes you. It freezes you. Okay? Leaves you where you are. I mean, back to the running analogy. This is the guy who's running, and he's looking back over his shoulder. You know what happens when you look over your shoulder? You get past. You slow down. Or you fall down. That happens, too. But this is the running out. Don't look back over your shoulder. And we'll come back to an application on this in a moment. But, and reaching forward to what lies ahead. God only cares about you doing one thing, and that is looking forward, going forward, moving forward. This reaching forward is so intense, it's, it's to stretch a muscle. It's got the double preposition, the grammar stuff. It means intensely, as hard as you can, stretching forward, stretching to the limit for what is in front of you. In the running metaphor, that's the goal. That's the prize that you may win. This, this is imagine. We just think of the, the runner as they get to the as they get to the finish line, and they're you know they're leaned way out like this, doing it. No, this is if as if you look at this runner, and you can just tell every fiber of his being from the start of the race is just like being drawn and pulled like a magnet to that finish line. He's the intense guy. He's got one focus, and that's on that finish line, and that's what reaching forward is here. Just driven to get to that goal. What lies ahead? Guess what? Knowing Christ fully. Stick to the context. Okay? We're going to see more about that in a moment. But this is Paul's only focus. In a running metaphor, this is like that T-shirt that says, run, rinse, refuel, rest, repeat. <laughs> that's what the athletics is. If you study great athletes, you realize that's what they do. They exercise they train hours per day, they clean up, they eat up, they rest up, and they go do it again, all right? So, what's the danger here? Well, he points it out, focusing on the past, getting hung up on the past. This can be many things. This can be living in your past glory. From where I come from, that's high school football players. 65 years old, and you look at them on Facebook, and they're still celebrating being on the winning team back in high school. They're still living there, okay? And they sure look like they haven't done anything since. Um, so common, okay? High school football players or career accomplishments. How many people do I see? They come out and they work so hard. They work for the first 10 years. And they say, well, now I've worked hard enough. I, I can rest. I can coast. And we just have to tell people, you're only as good as your last project, it doesn't matter what you did 10 years ago, five years ago, three years ago. How are you doing now? Okay, but they want to coast. They're living in the past. Or someone gets to the point that's an age like mine and says, well, I've done a lot of ministry. Let the young guys do it. Let the young guys do it. Wrong. Ask Joshua. We'll do that story sometime. 91 years old. And pfft, Every pulmonary, you can, everything you can imagine from his past ministry and everything, God says, yeah, forget it. Trust me. Go forward. You're leading him into the, the promised land. Stay in my word. Meditate on my word. Let me lead you into the promised land. You're going to do it. I don't care what your age is. Past doesn't matter. Stay focused. Get going. Um, you can't do that. But here's the other one. And maybe it's not your greatest success. Maybe it's, not your greatest, maybe it's your greatest hurt. 
You ever been hurt in the past? All right? Hurt by someone, hurt by something, hurt somewhere, great tra tragedy, great pain. And not to minimize that. They did hurt. They are tragedies. They are pain. You're too hurt to go forward. You're too hurt to risk. You're too hurt to, to try that again. Too hurt to get in a relationship. Too hurt to get out in ministry. Too hurt to do something. Forget it. Okay. No matter how much it hurts, Paul says, you got to let it go. And what that really is, is we're sitting there going, well, we don't ever forget. We supercharge events in our lives. Think about this. We take an event in our lives, and when you're really hurt, and what you do is there's a fact of the event, this box, and we supercharge it by attaching to it intense emotions. Great pain or great joy. And we bundle up this event, the facts, with the emotions, the great pain, the great joy. We can never forget. It's not going to go away. But what you need to do is you need to make a break between the fact of what happened and all the pain, all the hurt that was associated with it. Okay? It's in the past. And Paul's saying that's only going to hold you down from this greater thing of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. You've got to let that go. You've got to get it out of your thoughts. You've got to get it out of your conversations. You've got to get it out of your actions. We have all been hurt. Forget the past. It doesn't minimize it. It doesn't say it was any less than it was, but it is holding you back because it's another thing. It's the second thing, and it's going to keep you from that one thing. We live in the present, Matthew 6. We live in the present, but our goal, our focus of, of where we're spending our time is for the future. So you must pursue one goal, one thing. Pursue knowing Jesus Christ. You've got to have the right goal. You've got to have the right attitude. You haven't gotten there yet. You've got to have the right effort. You're running a race for an Olympic gold medal, and you've got to have the focus of one thing, forget the past and reach forward. Well, we're back to the proper goal again. Okay, look at verse 14. The one thing I do, again, requires the proper goal. Yeah, this passage it goes all the way back to essentially verse 3 in here. And so he's really finishing off the passage here with this. That's why we've seen goal in this so many times. But he says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. That upper call, staying with the, the call, that's staying with the context, that is still knowing Jesus Christ fully. He's pulling together everything that he's talked about. We're still in the race here. The words are still all your, your running words and that kind of thing. But the key to understand this, we've seen the press on, is this toward the goal, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus, okay? So we press on, we do this. Oh, by the way, goal here is the finish line. So it's staying with the, the running uh, picture. It's a, that mark, that place uh, that you finish the race on, the end point that you're focused on as you're running. For the prize here is, again, this is the prize for victory and running a race. It, it's all the running stuff. I'm pressing on, I'm strenuous hard effort to win the race. That one race, that one thing, winning. And Paul now defines what everything, brings it all together, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The key here is upward. It means heavenward. 
He is looking now to eternity. He is looking to the full realization of you knowing Jesus Christ. Call, of course, New Testament, it's effectual. God has started. You are going to get there. You cannot lose your salvation. You are going to get there. Okay, and this is of God in Christ Jesus. It's a focus on the fact that you are in union with Christ. You are in him now. You will be in him forever. And it's a focus on that union here. Uh, and that in that union, you will fully come to know Jesus Christ. So he's pulling it all forward. I wish I had more time to, to really unpack that. But you know what he's going to do in the next three verses? He's going to tell the Corinthians, you've got to make this your goal too. You're mature Christians. You need to make this your goal too. That's the simple form of what's going to be coming in verses 15 to 17. So our goal then, you want to say it in the last possible way, is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What's the greatest danger of this one? More than one goal. Distraction. Multiple goals. Wrong goals. All right? Obeying commands. Wrong goal. Legalism. Wrong goal. Not focused on knowing Christ, wrong goal. Or this problem of I've arrived, we don't need to go through that again. But think about it. When you talk about the upper call, this race, all these words coming together here, we know what happens in a life of someone that is dedicated, driven, focused on one goal. They have a huge impact in whatever area they're in, here in sports. It doesn't, it doesn't take much to understand an Olympic athlete. It's one thing, and that's what Paul is saying here. And again, your actions speak louder than your words. You're willing to walk away from here today and say one thing, one goal. All right. We're going to take a minute and do this. Think about your relationship for those of you who are married with your wife, your husband. If you're a child here, think about your best friend, your closest friend. Think about the excitement. You know, maybe when you met your wife, you met your husband, you had a Damascus Road experience. You fell madly in love. What did you want? You wanted to spend all your time with him, with her, or even if you found a new friend, one of the kids here, found a new friend, you want to spend all your time, you want to know them, you want to just, you know, be together all the time. In the marriage scenario, then you... You get married. And everybody says, well, what happened to Bill? <laughs> he used to hang out here and he used to do this with, where did he go? <laughs> okay. Oh, he got married. All right. Because that wife, your wife is that one thing. And you're so excited. And you want to do everything with her. Well, that time goes on. You know, life changes. And now, Friday night, your wife's thinking, ah, oh, maybe we go out to dinner, maybe do something. And you say, hey, at least you're nice enough. You say, hey, uh, I'm going to go out with my buddies. Uh, I haven't seen them in a long time. And you leave the wife at home. Now, it just so happens while you're home, she's praying for you. She's still doing your laundry. She's still taking care of things, watching the kids and all those kind of things. But, but you're out having fun. But then it progresses to the point where you don't even tell her. She's sitting there at the table and you just walk out and you're off to your Friday night or your Saturday morning golf game or whatever it is. And your life just goes on. Or you've got this friend and he's such a close friend that you say to your mom, can, can he move in with us? He really needs a place. And, you know, we see that families taking friends and things. And can we spend all our time? Yeah. And, and pretty soon you're ignoring that friend. And you're off doing something else. And you're ignoring that friend. And life goes on and on and on. And the friend's sitting there waiting, saying, hey, can we do something together? Well, you know, I'll be back. Or that wife's still sitting there waiting for you. 
and life just grows apart and apart and apart. You're in the same house, but you ignore her, or she ignores you, and you got your separate lives. Now let me switch metaphors. You had your Damascus Road experience with Jesus Christ. He stopped you dead in his crack, your tracks. Everything about your prior life, you gave up for him. He is now in you. He is with you always. You see that empty chair next to you? He's with you. And you took him home. You took him to your house. And you wanted to know him. And you wanted to study him. And you were in the word. And you got up in the morning. And Christ was sitting there and said, Oh, Bill's up. Good. He's going to talk to me. Prayer. He's going to get to know me more. Study the word. And you did that. And you were all excited. But then it started to wear off. And then eventually, you get up in the morning, he goes, oh, good, he's going to pray with me. Oh, Bill's off to the internet and is surfing the internet, watching the news. He didn't even talk to me. Okay? You get the picture. We're going to do that same path as we do with the wife. And pretty soon you're saying, um, yeah, I, I know I spent um, this evening, Thursday nights I like to study with you in prayer, but I really want to go out with my friends. Um, and, you know, you start to ignore Christ. And he is there. He is in you. He is sitting there. He is with you. What? Lo, I'm with you always. And you leave him. And he is your closest friend. You've committed your life to him. And you know what? You're out living the rest of your life, having your fun, focused on other things. And you know what? He's still taking care of you. That last breath you took, he just gave you. You drove off to be with your friends. He made sure other cars didn't hit you on the road because he said, Holy Spirit, go with this guy. I'm going to get him back eventually. But he's kind of wandering right now. And our Lord Jesus is there in the house with us. He's our friend. He's with us. We're close. We committed to our relationship. And we have abandoned him. That's what the I arrived life looks like. The Lord is sitting there waiting for you, still taking care of you, still blessing your life. And, oh, Don't worry, on Sunday morning with your wife and with the Lord, everybody get up. We got to go to church because they can't see me at church without my wife. All right? And we got to all look good. We got to put on our smiles. We're going to church. We're going to be a happy family. And Lord, I'm going to love you at church and such like that. And you come home and you take the Lord, put him on the shelf. That's what that life looks like. But instead, think of a marriage where you still love your wife, you still want to know her. Every day is a blessing and you want to grow and grow and grow. Or or you have friends as children and every day you want to spend more time together. You want to grow to know that friend more fully. Spend more time. You can't think of anything else in the morning than getting up and spending time with that friend. Well, that's what the Lord wants from us. He is, has, grasped us to know him fully. Don't disappoint him. Your one goal, your one pursuit, your one thing is to pursue your relationship with the Lord Jesus. He is in you. He is next to you. He is with you. And he is your life. Your life. You know, and if you're here today and you don't know this Lord, I'm talking about this Lord that Paul took all his credentials and threw them away for took everything in his life that he valued and threw them away for if you don't know this Lord and you come to realize this Lord Jesus Christ must be the most amazing thing I want to get to know him my life maybe my life has these credentials maybe it doesn't but I want that kind of relationship oh heavens talk to us
We would love to share that. We want you to have the same Lord, the same one thing, the same one purpose. I've taken a lot of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, one thing. Well, you've given us one thing. You've given us your Son, Jesus Christ. You've given us the only thing, your only begotten Son. You gave us one thing, his life. Lord, he's not just a wife. He's not just a friend. He is a friend. He's not just brother. He is a brother. When we go around, we introduce Christ as our friend. Lord, we have to introduce you as you're a friend because you died for us. May we remember that. May we count everything, even things in our lives now, uh, loss, things that should be put aside for you. May we all leave here today with a complete 180-degree turn in our lives. We pursue one thing, knowing you, Lord Jesus, fully and completely from now into eternity. Thank you. In your name, Lord Jesus, amen.